Okay, welcome everyone to another all-star edition of the Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm your host today, Darren Bramer, and I am joined by panelist Valentino Stoll. Hey there. And our special guest today is Takashi Kokobun. Takashi, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and why you are famous? I'm a software engineer at Treasure Data, and I'm also working on Ruby as as a Ruby committer, working on a JIT compiler. I've also maintained some uh, template engines like Hamel ELB and my own Hamlet, which is a faster version version of Hamel. And um, so far, like. In the last three years, I've been mostly working on the JIT compiler organization. So, like, I think if you join the uh, Ruby conferences, you may hear about me in the uh, JIT compiler related talks. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing these days. Awesome. Great. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So tell us a little bit about your work on the JIT compiler. I know you've done, obviously, a lot of work in the performance area there, and you've got a very interesting article on Medium about whether it's actually faster or not for Rails. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. So we started to introduce the JIT compiler to CRuby from 2.6. However, when introduced that at the first release, that was not really fast. Like the largest problem was when you run Rails application on the JIT, the application actually becomes slower, which is the opposite of what we wanted to do with JIT. So we've struggled, like we spent a lot of time to improve that situation. And finally, this year in the Ruby 3.0, we introduced major improvement on the code performance. And then we still, uh, when we released the Ruby 3.0, the, our evaluation of the Ruby 3.0 was behind the application optimization. However, we investigated further. And this year, around like May or something, I, I figured out how to optimize the application by just changing some configuration of the Ruby 3.0. So now we can improve the Rails application by just enabling the JIT compiler without modifying no, any code. So in the performance, the current performance is like 3% faster in the real world application, like a discourse, which is a discussion platform used by many other many vendors. And also in a smaller Rails application made by a scaffold that improves some performance, like 4%-ish. So like uh, it's still not that fast. Like, I'd expect 10% faster before like nearly giving a meaningful experience to customers or like an impact to customers. However, it's way better than making it slower because if once it becomes faster, you can just add an optimization to that and continuously improve the performance. While if it's still slower, you first of all need to investigate why it becomes faster. And even if you add an optimization, that may be still slower. So it's a very different situation from this year. 
Yeah, th- this is really interesting. Before we dive into kind of the how you did that and maybe some of the issues that uh, you're still facing, which you outlined perfectly in your article, if we could just recap quickly on JIT itself, because I know in many years ago, I, I was at a Ruby Kaigi where Evan Phoenix gave the closing keynote, kind of introducing, hey, we need a JIT in Embry. And it was kind of great as he broke it down into the different pieces uh, that are kind of needed or available to us already for JIT. And a lot has changed since then, obviously. And a lot of the work you've done has already solved a lot of what he outlined. But if you could just kind of outline some of the different pieces that are involved in making the JIT and the kind of the categories that you focused on to help make this happen. Okay. So first of all, JIT compiler is an abbreviation of a just-in-time compiler. So uh, what it does is when you run a Ruby application, the JIT is supposed to optimize the Ruby application on the fly while executing the same uh, target optimization. So usually when you run the Ruby program, the comp- internal compiler of the interpreter optimizes the code beforehand. However, once you run the application, the Ruby interpreter can know a lot of information on what's going on. Like So the Ruby method can invoke whatever uh, method, whatever you define in there elsewhere. So it cannot know what exact method is executed in every single line. So once you execute one line, this compiler can tell which method is going to be executed there. So using that information, we can guess a lot of things from there. So we can remove the type checks or like method dispatch table and inline such things there and just branch a few things and uh, make it faster than the original interpretation. So for doing that, we need to have a, another compiler, which is not different from the uh, interpreter because that takes care of a lot of runtime information to do that kind of optimization. So we built that compiler and the if you enable the JIT compiler that runs a JIT compiler thread and that's concurrently running from the uh, main thread and that will invoke C compiler so that that can generate a native code. And then finally, the native code will be fed into the Ruby interpreter concurrently. And then once it's done, the main Ruby thread will use the native code to run faster. So that's roughly how it works. So there's mm-hmm. a process that runs kind of alongside the VM to yeah. help that. So it yeah. is truly concurrent. Yes. And is that other compiler, That's a, is that a basic C compiler or is it some special variant of that? So we support at least three types of compilers. One is GCC and the other, uh, sorry, under is C Clan, a Clan, LLVM Clan. And the last thing is a uh, Microsoft Visual Studio. So like you can, so because we support uh, three of these that can run in a lot of platforms and other compilers could be working without other modifications, but we still don't have a code to directly support that. So it doesn't really support it. But our main support is currently uh, supposed to be uh, GCC or Clang because in Windows, we have some other performance issues. So we focus on improving the performance over GCC or Clang for now. And is this implemented? I remember reading somewhere, I don't remember if it's in your article, I apologize, but that it actually does create the C code write it to disk, run the compiler against that, and then use the compiled output? Yep, yep. So one of the problems of MJIT is uh, like you need to write a C code to disk or like 
it's not technically a disk if you run uh, Linux because we write a file to the slash temp and that could be temporary, like a, sorry, home memory uh, disk. Sorry. So uh, that could be just uh, at least faster than a physical disk, but like you need to write a C file so that C compiler can uh, fetch it. Unfortunately, there's no option to pipe the C code to the GCC and spawn the process and fed into that directly. So we need to write a file, but uh, once it's what the compilation is done, we just delete the file. So the garbage files will not be left there for a long time. Yeah, this is all of this is fascinating to me, I have to admit, because I often think I have a computer science degree and I've been an engineer my entire career, you know, sometimes uh, more of a manager than a hands-on, but and I often think I it sometimes feels I rarely get to actually use computer science skills and ideas and concepts in my daily work. I certainly did when I worked at Amazon Web Services in terms of scaling and things like that. And then oftentimes it comes up in, oddly enough, just like doing like graphical applications, having to, do, and maybe that's just more math calculating X, Y coordinates and things like that, where to draw things on the screen. But what you're doing is, is actually using all of the computer science concepts. So to me, it's fascinating. One thing you had mentioned at the beginning that you were able to do some of this just through configuration changes when you were doing the, the MJIC compiler and not through code. So what, what type of configuration changes did you have to make? So in the future, we plan to make it a default configuration. However, currently, we do not enable JIT compiler by default. So you need to pass a dash dash JIT to the Ruby command so that uh, the JIT compiler thread will be enabled or like executed in your Ruby program. And the other way, when you need to execute under command instead of like a Ruby command, you need to, uh, you can also use a Ruby opt environment variable to pass a dash dash JIT option. Also, as explained in the article, maybe that will be linked in the podcast later, we need to increase the number of methods you need to cache for optimizing the resident application because the default configuration of the dash dash JIT max cache is currently 100. But we found that 100 is too little and we need to increase that to 1000-ish, uh, 10, sorry, 10,000-ish. So like, uh, if you want to use a Ruby 2.0, you probably want to, for example, if you are using a REST application, you probably want to pass a Ruby optimization variable and use the dash dash JIT max cache 10,000. And yeah, that would be, I guess, enough for as a default configuration. And you probably want to enable warning to the backdash. So like dash dash JIT warning could be also helpful, but that's it for the configuration. And I, I saw too here, based on the benchmarks, that there's some warm-up costs to that. Is yeah. that ultimately what that's doing, kind of like the J, JVM, where they cache a lot of things up front? Yeah, it's it's a very similar thing, although it's, a I think, much could be much slower in MJ because of the comparison time. So when the JVM starts, it's also does the similar thing, like uh, compares a lot of uh, native methods. However, it's... I think much faster than this running a C compiler. So like if you run a JVM and pass is an instrumentation option, that will print a lot of uh, methods very quickly. However, MJIT is like used just using a C compiler. So it is as slow as C compiler running, compiling a just one object file. So when you start MJIT, that will produce uh, one C code for every single method. And like in my mas machine, that will take like 
200 milliseconds at least for each method. So if you want to compile 10,000 methods, that would mean 10,000 multiplies at 200 milliseconds. So that's a little bit much slower. So yeah, that will be uh, actually the warmer time because when the C compiler is running, that will consume some CPU resources from your machine. So uh, that will mean that also impacts the Ruby performance while the GT is still not done. So even if you can optimize the final performance by JIT compiler, the while the warmup is still ongoing, the Ruby performance is actually slower than the baseline. I gotcha. I mean, I think we get some of that warm-up cost even with Rails, if you're in that ecosystem, right? Where there's some warm-up costs associated with caching all the classes and in a Rails application. So I don't know that that would, if there's a way to configure it that, to optimize for your app, I feel like you'd get a lot of traction that way. Can you talk a little bit more about the benchmarks that you have? Because you have, it looks like you have kind of branched off of the OptCare at this point to focus on some more real world, as you call it, examples or benchmarks. Can you talk about some of the things that you've put together? Because I see you have your own slew of other benchmarks that you're focusing on at, the, at this point. Sure. So the first benchmark we used for Ruby 3x3 was called OptCare, which is a NES simulator, like a, a Famicom emulator. So like it's basically a game simulator. So it's a very CPU intensive and just measures the VM performance. And it even doesn't create objects. So if you run the application, that's a very different workload from that. Also, the game emulator is very intensive about pixel rendering. So the method that renders the pixels on the screen is very intense, intense. And like, if you just enable a few things in the method, that will make the benchmark score a little much better. So it's a bit easier to optimize that. However, for measuring the real world applications, I prepared some, a few benchmarks like a Sinatra and a Rails simple bench, which is actually prepared by another person. And also Rails bench, which is, I think, I, I actually Fork that from a, a JRB team, and then finally a discourse benchmark. I will explain that one by one. So the Sinatra benchmark was uh, motivated by one blog post that said MGIT become makes um, Sinatra slower, and the application was just returning a single string little from uh, the Sinatra app. So it's very simple. It's like just almost benchmarking the routing of the Sinatra. So under rack uh, middleware. So uh, it's very simple, but it's still prior versions could not uh, in enable the, oh, sorry, they optimize the Sinatra application. So the benchmark is this one Sinatra returning a single string object. And now the Ruby 3.0 with some proper configuration can now optimize that by 11%, make it 11% uh, like a 1.11% uh, times faster. And then the other, another thing, uh, Rails simpler branch is something similar to this Sinatra benchmark because um, the default endpoint used for this benchmark is uh, returning a single string middle or like an object from the Rails. So like it's measuring again the rack middleware and the Rails routing. And now this is 4% uh, faster by the Ruby 3.0 with proper configuration. The last two things, one is a Rails bench. Uh, Rails bench is just a application that is created by Rails, G, Scaffold, and then just specifying a few uh, fields for the model. And so uh, we just measure the show action. 
to uh, benchmark that. And so it involves the active record, unlike the very simpler bench, which just returns a sing single uh, string object. So it's much more real-world-ish application, but the, it's still not an actual application because obviously you don't just run the scaffold in production. So the final discourse uh, benchmark is called Discourse, uh, which is a real application. And then this has a lot of business logic in there, and it's much uh, time-consuming and slower. So you benchmark a lot of actual workloads like database, uh, more slower queries, or like uh, including the caching as well. So both of these, like Rails Bench and Discourse, are now 3% uh, faster by the Ruby 3.0 plus uh, configuration. So now we are focusing on these benchmarks because we got a lot, of, a lot of benchmarks after we called for, we want to have a lot of benchmarks, but actually running benchmarks could be a tricky if you are not familiar with the application. So because we wanted to make it easier to measure the performance, we currently focus on these applications for now. But yeah, that we our intent is to leverage in that, we want to make more applications faster. So if you found a benchmark which is not becoming faster by uh, the same configuration, you might want to let us know. I was going to say, is there a way that people now can try out JIT and benchmark it against their own app? Is there an easy way to do that? So first of all, you probably want to upgrade your Ruby to 3.0 if you haven't. And as I said, uh, you at least need to pass the com configuration I said before. That is a uh, dash dash jit max cache ten thousand, and even if you do that, you also need to wait until the warm up is done so that you can properly measure the difference between the jit and interpreter because it's inter in currently intentional that during the warm up it becomes slower. So uh, even if you found it slower, it may not be necessarily about the actual performance of the jit. So to see easily see the warm-up is done, there's an option called dash dash jit verbals equals one. If you specify that, that will print as the method is compiled. So if the log of the JIT compilation stops, that will mean all compilation is done. Another caveat, caveat is, I think that this is what I wanted to talk later, but um, this is a pro there's a problem that Ruby 3.0 JIT is not compatible with uh, TrisPoint at all. And since Rails 6, there's a autoloader called Zeitwerk. So if you enable a Zeitwerk, that will uh, use a TracePoint even if it's in production. So in some cases. So if it, the TracePoint is used, you may see the output that says uh, JIT compiler like doesn't compile nothing, anything anymore. But that will not mean that JIT warmup is done because uh, the first point is enabled. I'm going to make it easier to understand, but in Ruby 3.0, you need to make sure your application doesn't use trace point and uh, that will be improving 3.1, but for now, it's that it is. So I have, I think, probably a, not a dumb question, but hopefully <laughs> a semi-intelligent question, which is, and I think you talk about this in your article, why not just compile everything? Like why, I think there's some intelligence and heuristics, you know, being used in kind of the, quote, normal operation or usage of this, but is there an advantage or did you look at, like, just com just compile all the code? So it turns out uh, we actually want to compile everything. Like, we used to com compile only a few methods, like uh, 100, but now the what the article actually said is 
we actually need to compare everything to get a full performance. This is complicated because usually in JIT compilers, it's believed that compiling the most hot spots, like a method that is called a lot of times, are very important to be optimized. And if you optimize those hot spots, that will gain a lot of 80% or like a, a large amount of percentage to, to the performance impact will be gained by that. But the problem is, if you compile only a few methods of the program, that will mean putting some methods in the uh, JIT cache and the, all other methods will be executed in the other place, which is virtual machine of the Ruby. And if you have different things in different places, that's um, bad for the code locality or like a cache locality is bad. So if you do that way, you the CPU needs to load two set of chunks of calls as, uh, interchangeably, and then uh, that could invalidate each other's cache when you go to the each other points. So in my our current understanding, that is the uh, bottleneck for the prior Ruby versions. So to avoid that problem, our current solution has been to just compile everything to put that in the JIT cache. And so uh, you don't need to go back to the Ruby virtual machine cache. So yeah, actually we want to compile everything. But the problem is if you want to compile everything at the beginning, that will take a lot of time. And also we may not be ready for optimizing everything. Like to gain the full performance, you need to execute every single branch and every single pattern of the code to profile the type of information in the runtime application. So it's sometimes actually faster to slowly compile things so that you will get a lot more information for methods that are not called a lot. So for example, if you just go through application once and compile everything, there will be some branches that are not executed yet. But we by compiling from the uh, most frequent called methods, that will ensure uh, each method compiled is going to have a, a sufficient amount of calls. Yeah, this is super interesting. So I certainly there's the trade-off with the startup time if you're doing a lot of this at, at startup. But you also mentioned that you're using some of the runtime profile information to help guide the the optimization. So this, yeah, this I'm fascinated by this. So what could you give us an example of what's a what type of information from the runtime profile would help provide a better uh, solution? So the most important runtime information is a method cache because method dispatch of Ruby is so complicated that it's making the Ruby program very slow if there's no optimization for that. However, Ruby interpreter itself has the optimization for that called inline method cache. So every line has a reference to the actual method uh, entry so, so that you don't need to traverse the grass hierarchy to find an actual method entry. So if the cache key is matched, uh, you can just go to the uh, cache entry and run that. So this compiler leverages the information to optimize that so that we don't need to, of course, skip some method dispatch logic and also use the, uh, the method entry also has some type of information. So if you see the method cache entry, you can see what class is used for that. And so if, for example, if there are multiple method calls that use the same class, you can skip some of the class check when the self is the same as the other call. So you can reuse the number of type checks there for example, and also you can also inline the method if you know what it is. 
interpreter cannot inline things because that's interpreting every single line or like instruction. But compiler or like JIT compiler can see through the method dispatch because we can know the cache information. So let's say you have a absolute method called like a one dot abs. You can see the one one dot abs calls this C code and like you can call that beforehand if you know the abs method is uh, immutable or like a uh, pure and does not have any side effect to other places. So you can call that beforehand on the compiler and just return the result of the one.abs as a one to the in, and inline that to the compiler. So that kind of thing can be possible if you just know the inline cache. The other entry or like an important thing is instance variable cache. So instance variable is also very complicated in Ruby because you can add as many instance variables as possible after just defining the class. So that can grow infinitely. But to know the location of the instance variable in memory, you have to know which index of this particular instance variable is uh, assigned to this class. So that is actually important for optimizing the optim instance variables in the virtual machine as well. Like to know the exact location, you have to look up a lot of tables to see the instance variable, but we have a cache for doing that similarly as the, the method cache. So using that information, we can also inline the index of the instance variable reference in the JIT compiler, which is very important for uh, virtual code obscure because obscure uses a lot of instance variable references in the uh, pixel rendering. So that's uh, one of the factors that made us three point, uh, three by, uh, Ruby 3 by 3 possible. So that, that makes me think of this. Uh, and you mentioned it in your article, but the, the on-stack replacement kind of seems like it fits well in that, but also causes a lot of problems where you need to exit the VM to execute these pieces that you've cached. Can you, just, can you shed some light onto maybe why we want to move away from that and use something different? So there is a, so if you do that kind of optimization, you need to stop doing that when this is not possible or like a, not feasible or reasonable. So when you inline the method cache, for example, or like a method entry, for example, you have to discard the code execution and exit that and then move that to a real interpretation when, for example, the method entry is redefined. And for checking that, we are currently just inserting the uh, branch, checking if this is not redefined yet. And so that will incur some uh, checking, like a branching cost to the uh, runtime performance. However, in other sophisticated JIT compilers like a JVM C2 compiler, that inserts other more faster check, like a read instruction that checks a memory on a, like a, some location of memory. And when we want to invalidate that, we can protect the memory location so that that will trigger this segmentation fault by the read in instrument instruction. By doing so, we can invoke the signal 100 there and then Signal 100 can take care of that to roll back the JIT interpretation to virtual machine execution. That will be a lot of a lot faster than branching or like checking something and branching inserting the branching uh, instruction. So we may want to do that, but the uh, problem is, of course, we have already uh, Signal 100 for the reinterpreter. And the larger problem is we cannot know how to convert the JIT or like a fallback the JIT execution to the VM interpretation because the native code is generated by C compiler and we don't know much information about what code we are generating. 
So to fall back the, for example, reg so to know how we can fall back the execution to VM interpretation, we need to know which value is stored in which register or stack, but the, <laughs> that's something the C compiler will take out. So for implementing that, we need to, uh, we may need to generate instruction by ourselves, like JVM or other project called YG by Shopify. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I was I was leading up to that because I'm interested to know how MJIT fits in or YJIT fits in the MJIT, kind of what the differences are, how, how you guys are sharing, collaborating. If you want to shed some light on I'd love to hear kind of what is in the works there. Sure. So first of all, YJIT is a project by Shopify. So Shop has, has a lot of really like a full-time OSS contributors. And I think at least three people are currently working on the YJIT project, which is under a JIT compiler for CV, uh, which is still in early stages, as they say, and it's not in other part of the C Ruby interpreter for now. So the architecture is much different from MJIT. Shopify is like Shopify's YJIT is more natural JIT architecture. Like it generates the uh, assembly code by itself, and you don't need to execute the C compiler, so you don't see other weird process under the Ruby program. But the problem is you need to support every single architecture by yourself. So it's currently supporting the x86, and it's sometimes not possible to run some code in other platform. So of course, we need to spend more time to support craft, make it portable. But it, they also achieved a lot of uh, good performance in benchmarks we use, like uh, Rails application. They recently achieved the uh, virtual machine, the same performance as virtual machine, and then also improved that on that after a few months. So people may see us as a comp competing with each other, but we actually are not competing with each other. We, I think at least it's better to collaborate with each other and we don't need to make a single, or like a, we don't need to have multiple implementations that are have that similar in, uh, performance. Like we can, if we build a next generation JIT compiler, we can just replace that with the current implementation and collaborate with that by everybody. We'd be much better than developing different things. And some people use this version and some other people use this version. So that part of the thing I've done in the past is contributing to YJIT. One of my works was to enable the method inlining or like, so method inlining has two parts. One is the skipping the method frame push, which you usually see in the stack trace when you see the error. The other is the actual definition uh, embedding. And stack frame push is slow process. Like you need to capture environment information there and also store more information to the frame. And so skipping that is makes a program much faster. So YG team also implemented that by themselves, but the way they implemented it is different from us and also that has some fragile things that it doesn't actually check if it's safe to skip the frame. Um, but MG team, or actually myself, implemented a way to check if the frame push is skipping the frame push is safe or not. So we shared the we wanted to share the uh, implementation so that 
widget is also very safe about the skip, skipping the frame. So I ported the images implementation to widget so that they can use the same method of skipping. Like they only had one method to be skipped, uh, which is a uh, hash the bracket method. But the, we had way more set of methods to be optimized. Like uh, I don't remember, but uh, integer methods, fraud methods, and some other kernel or like a built-in methods are also possible to be in line. So we now we share the same set of method entries between YGT and uh, MGT to be optimized. And also that also means if YGT wants to optimize more methods, they will add the method entries to the uh, core of the Ruby interpreter so that that will also impact MGT as well. So if we build or like if we optimize MGT, that will automatically uh, optimize YGT as well. And then the MYG team optimizes themselves that we also optimize MJIT. So that way we are collaborating with each other right now. So YJIT is, to me, it seems like more like the partial evaluation part of that JIT. Is there anything that you guys are working on on the MJIT portion of it that could overlap? Are, are, you, you know, are you trying any other partial evaluation techniques like an AST or something and playing around with that? So their approach is, first of all, called uh, basic versioning, which is also related to the uh, author Maxine's, the paper uh, of the her PhD. So that is, so MJIT is, on the other hand, uh, it's not the, diff, it's a different architecture, like it's called a method-based uh, JIT compiler, a method, method JIT compiler. So it compiles a method as a chunk of the compile target, but the YJIT is, um, uses a basic block as a chunk of the code. So when you execute the chunk of the basic block, which is separated if you see the branch or the end of the method and things like that. So it's much smaller than method, but the, their benefit of using that is they can propagate the uh, basic proxy type of information to the following basic blocks so that you can type specialize that by just propagating that information through the branches and the basic blocks. But approaching MJIT is slightly different from that. We can use the inline cache information to uh, achieve that partially. So the, the problem is if you have multiple branches, uh, when you join that branches, you will see like a uh, different patterns or like uh, it's actually the different, the, the problem is inline cache has only one entry for now. So like if you want to support multiple types there in the joined branches, you need to handle two cases, but you only have one case in the in the cache. So that's the shortcoming of MJIT, but YJIT architecture takes care of that better. Like um, you can generate the two basic blocks for type specialized versions for different branches if they need to be different. So that's how they differ. But in MJIT, I think we could add some layer that profiles more information instead of just relying on the what virtual machine uh, generates. Like in JVM, there's a, a technique called tiered comparison that compiles the native code to just profile the information and then replace that with the most optimized code. So by doing so, we can uh, track more information by MJIT and then uh, you can also do use that kind of thing to generate the code as fast as widget. However, uh, the, because the architecture is much different, I think we cannot share that part which by this for now. So we are thinking about doing that kind of thing, but this part is not shareable for the part you mentioned. 
But we also have something we are planning to share, which is supporting more method in learning for the technique which I mentioned before. That is the, so currently we can skip method frame push only for method that are very basic and that satisfies the, some guarantee. Like you need to, the method you skip frame push is need to satisfy one condition, which is that doesn't execute any random method. And also that doesn't throw anything because raising uh, exception also triggers really method randomly. So that means it's very difficult because let's say you, your method has an argument. You should take an argument and that's not what is expected. Uh, you may throw argument error or type error if it's new. So that, those kind of methods that take an argument can't be optimized. So we want to optimize that kind of thing as well, of course. Also, if a method generates, if a method may generate object, that we also may also raise a memory, no memory error. So that's also something we cannot optimize for now. So obviously, uh, there are a lot of methods that generate review objects. So we want to optimize that as well. So the way we want plan to support that is to lazily skip a, sorry, lazily push a frame when it's needed. Like we, when we execute the C-based method call, that will be pushed to the native stack, uh, which is not the part of the implementation. But when we see the native stack, we can see uh, what we generated is on stack. And so we can uh, know this method is, uh, should be having a method frame if you target that as a method that is to be skipped on this uh, Ruby's stack frame. So we can lazily push that to the Ruby's virtual machine stack. And by doing so, we can do the slow frame push only when it's needed, like when something is raised or like a random method is called. So by doing so, we can optimize more methods and that's going to be shared between YGT and NOJ. So as I listen to you describe Takashi, these really challenging and difficult problems that that you had to solve and, and your, your colleagues, a couple of things come to mind. One is that there's definitely a reason that you're a JIT engineer and a Ruby committer and, and a reason that I'm not because these are insanely complex things. But another that comes to mind is how much for the average listener who is not necessarily in the weeds, in the gory details at the level under, under the hood, but they're more of your application programmer, how much of this did they need to be aware of? How much did they need to be cognizant of? So certainly they're gonna they can use the dash dash JIT option to in, to enable this. It is an opt in. Beyond that, how much how much does the average application programmer in Ruby need to be thinking about these things and thinking about the performance versus knowing that there is the JIT compiler underneath all of this that's going to help them get some extra performance out of their application? So for me, the baseline is we want to optimize a Ruby program by the JIT compiler so that programmers don't need to think about it. Like if you, if the, your program runs faster without thinking about that, that's awesome. You, you need to spend, you can spend more your time for other purposes. So the goal of the JIT for me is letting you not think about that. So you shouldn't be aware of how JIT compiler is uh, doing the optimization or how uh, what kind of code is becomes faster by JIT compiler. So our job is to make sure uh, 
that whatever types of code becomes faster. And so you shouldn't need to think about which kind of code becomes faster by JIT compiler. So for example, let's say there is a check, like uh, checking the string video equals to something, and you are not putting a dot freeze or like a frozen string video true in the pragma, uh, that will make string object allocation. And so some advanced Ruby programmer may put uh, either of these to, so that that will not generate an object allocation. But JIT compiler can check if we don't, whether we don't, we need to allocate objects there or not. So if we implement that kind of optimization, you can stop thinking about that. So you don't need to aware of that. Yeah. It, so, it would be yeah, really, it would be really nice to see a list of things you can do now to get ready so that when this is released, and we could talk more about that in a second here, but once this is released, if we can adhere to this list of rules, our, our code could be much faster with, by just snapping in. Is there any, do we have any shared place where we can keep track of these things, like you just mentioned, with frozen strings? Frozen strings, uh, I have them. So in the past Ruby Kaigi, uh, I shared the idea to do that, but it's still not in master yet, unfortunately. So I need to, first of all, uh, merge that <laughs> to master first. Okay. But that's there are some blockers for making it safe. Like we can uh, implement that. That works for 99% of the cases, but making the 1% work is very difficult. So that's why it's not still there. But once it's there, I, I can probably create a wiki page on Ruby rubylang.org to share the current state of the image optimizations, I think. Yeah, that would be really great. And I think could see a lot more, a big uptick from using the newer JIT when it does come out. And it kind of does lead me to my next uh, question is, when can we expect to get this great performance increase uh, or, or, or JIT to be released? Uh, is there a plan uh, version number we can look for? That's a difficult question. I always work hard to make sure the next version is going to be the best. So of course, uh, Ruby 3.1 is going to be faster, but the, the all, to implement all the things I plan to implement currently, it's going to take... Yeah, that's a difficult question. Um, hopefully... <laughs> hey, don't, hey, don't have... let Valentino push... Don't. I mean, he, he already assigned <laughs> you a documentation task, and now he's asking you schedule <laughs> questions. I feel like all of a sudden I'm in a, a work meeting now. No, I'm just... <laughs> So, no, I mean, you're um, all this hard work you're doing. You're you're making all of us average <laughs> application develop, developers like me look good. So we're we're thankful for all the stuff you're doing. <laughs> so for Emergent, I think at least in one or two years, I should be able to implement all the things I plan to do. So like at least in three point two, I think you should be able to see the best state of the uh, Emergent. I think, however. There are a few other projects going on for CB's JIT, as you may know. Uh, one is YJIT, as I mentioned before, and the other is the something called MIR, uh, MIR or I think they also call it MIL. So that is uh, actually a different layer from the YJIT or possibly also MJIT. That is like uh, replacing the part of the, the layer of the C compiler because MIL takes a C, C code as an input and generates a native code like C compiler or LLVM does. So if we replace the MJIT C compiler layer to the MIL, you should be able to see compilation becomes much faster. And possibly if we have some specialized optimization in the MIL for Ruby, we may be able to see some more extra gain for the uh, runtime performance as well. I think the 
best benefit out of using NMIR is going to be the uh, reduction of the warm-up speed because the, it's expected to be much faster than run, invoking the sync compiler for every single method. So uh, warm-up, I think, will be much faster, and, and meaning if the warm-up is very fast, fast and much easier to reproduce, you can try out the uh, benchmark over your application much easier and uh, make it easier to adapt that to your production application. So I think the author of Mew said it's also go going to take some time for making it production ready. But I think once it's ready and mar merged to Ruby, I think it's much uh, easier to use and uh, maybe you may want to try at that point. Uh, the other product, Wygit, is also in early stages, and once it becomes ready and could, is, becomes a part of the CDB's uh, JIT compiler option, maybe you want to try that as well because the it has some different characteristics of the performance, and so that may be actually faster than MJIT for your application, and so that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, and I we know that you are a busy guy, and as as I understand, there's another schedule variable that we should consider here, Takashi. I believe. Uh, you had an, a, an addition to your family within the last year. Is, is that true? Is uh, yeah. I imagine that's also keeping you busy and, and possibly up during the night as well. <laughs> right. So uh, last year in July, I we had a baby, our first baby, and so we need. I need to, or like, uh, we need to take care of the baby even in the, uh, in the holidays or like uh, at evenings. And so for sure, uh, my time for developing OSS has been decreased since then. But because the child became uh, one year old now, I think now it's a little bit easier than last year to take care of the child. So I at least have a stable amount of time for allocated for my own works uh, besides the uh, time taken for taking care of the baby when she's awake. So now I have some time for doing that, but I also have the time for uh, working on the CS project. Like I'm also a CS master student, uh, which is working on Arega, who is working on the online course for pursuing the CS degree. So I also work on that, but I plan to graduate from the university next year. So hopefully after that, I will have the full speed to develop OSS or whatever I want to do. Are, are you able to use any of this uh, JIT work as part of your coursework? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. I already took one compiler class, so I think the the direction is the opposite. Like when I learn something from the compiler class, I can possibly leverage the uh, information in the JIT work. Like I learned how to do the resurrection, and so I kind of be able to guess what kind of thing is going on behind. The code generated by MJIT. And so I also plan to take another compiler class this year. So hopefully that will make us make me more sophisticated to optimize the uh, compiler. I remember I did my master's of computer science when my daughter was relatively young. She's she's gonna be in her last year of high school now. So this was a little while ago. But yeah, I think I started, I generally started my studies like around 11 p.m. or so, which you know, after everyone else in the house was in bed and things were relatively quiet. And as far as I can remember, that was kind of the norm. It was pretty much <laughs> par for the course. That's when a lot of the graduate level work gets done. Well, Takashi, are there any other topics that you wanted, any other technical topics before we switch gears that you wanted to cover uh, today? 
Uh, I think that's it for the JIT part, I think. Okay, great. And how can people reach you? Are you uh, on Twitter, GitHub? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and I'm very uh, comfortable getting replies on Twitter. So feel free to reach out to me by uh, just mentioning at Kogman there. All right, great. Well, with that, then why don't we transition into our picks part of the episode? Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So, Valentino, do you want to start us off with your picks for the week? Sure. <laughs> I got to think about it here. So I guess my first pick of the week is mRuby. I've been playing a little bit with using mRuby on a Raspberry Pi, which is maybe not the best way to go about using it. Probably maybe some other microcontrollers are are better used for it. But I have I've had a great success using it and uh, getting it to compile on the board and and using it that way uh, rather than just installing it, Ruby just compiling it. So I'm, I'm playing with it so I can use it on some other boards that I'm using, and it's really well built and. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying out some of the libraries available for it. And the the next pick I have is I don't have another pick. <laughs> well, we, I, I would I would suggest taking a look at Takashi's other great work IR, with IRB, uh, where he's uh, kind of merged in some of the other Pry esque features, which is really cool. So uh, maybe one of the picks could be those new features that have come in fr- from Pi. Inspired by Pry, which is uh, the ls command, the show source, and the colored output for sure. Uh, I know those are my top three favorites so far coming in Ruby 3.1. So thank you, Takashi, for that. And uh, looking forward to more more great IRB work as well. Awesome. It's too bad that Luke is not on the episode this week because he would be very happy with your MRuby selection, I believe. So my pick for the week is the CLI Gem TTY. So some of my favorite interfaces are actually command line interfaces. And I use the analogy of driving a car, driving a car with a manual transmission, where it's a skill you don't always have to have anymore. It's actually pretty rare to find cars these days that still have manual transmissions. But you feel closer to the machine. You feel more in control of the car. And so to me, I really enjoy that. And I think this is a place where Ruby shines. I've worked on a lot of projects where we have APIs, where you need to test them and work with them. And so command line interfaces are a great way to do that. Ruby's perfect for it. And so TTY has a number of independent modules, which you can use together in conjunction with each other, or just pick and choose. So that part I really like. It's also very, very easy to use. I started using that for the first time on a project this week. So the TTY library is, is is my pick for the week. All right, Takashi, do you have picks for us? Okay, I have two picks today. One is a RTX 360. 
these days, NVIDIA's video card, uh, video cards have been very hard to get, but uh, I was fortunate to be able to get one of these by scraping, or like not, not scraping, but the, uh, re reloading the page a lot. So uh, I, now I have that one, and now I can use that for the machine learning project I mean in, in these, uh, doing the CS degree. So if I'm, do, I'm doing taking a deep deep learning project class, and by using that, uh, I successfully accelerated my local uh, training process 20-ish times faster than using a CPU. I also use Ryzen CPU, the latest like Ryzen, so it should be fast, but still using RTX is 20 times faster than that. So if you do deep learning, I would highly recommend buying that if you can. And the other pick is 64 gigabytes of RAM. So like for, this is also for the uh, deep learning because um, there, there's a Python script I faced this week uh, that uses a lot of uh, memory, just speed stupidly. Like uh, it just loads the entire dataset to memory. So you need to have the as large as the dataset. And that, that was unfortunately more than the three, 32 gigabytes. So I need to add more RAM. And now is, I think, a little bit better time than before because when the GPU price rise rose, the price of the memory also rose because the, we run short of the, the the things, the hardware needed for building all these. So that was much more expensive before, but now it's a little bit more cheaper now. So I was able to buy that in a much cheaper price. This is, that's it. Nice. All right, well, I can I can say that after we are finished recording this episode, I'm excited to go run my applications with that JIT flag. And I think, what did, what did you say, Takashi? You said it's going to run 250% faster? Is it, that's, that was the number that I wrote down here. Is that is that right? No. <laughs> That'd be cool, though. I, yeah. I think the important part here is that it's going to run faster, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, if it can even make my code run faster, then it's doing amazing things. Now, we, Takashi, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. We certainly appreciate it. And I, I've learned a lot from from this conversation. It's it's great to hear all of the cool cool work that you are doing. Be sure to check out Takashi's articles, which we will include links to. You can visit him on Twitter. Once again, Takashi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you more about MJIT and keep keep up the great work. Thank you. Yes, in thank life you. and in Ruby. <laughs> yes, if it doesn't seem like it, we're very appreciative when our when our apps run faster. Well, thanks, everybody. That's it. We're going to close out this episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. We'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.